Well, if you arrived with a Bible this morning, I want to encourage you to take it and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible, get your phone out, your iPad, whatever it is you've got in hand, use that device, get with us in the Word of God. As we continue on this morning, I, I just have to be honest with you. This series of messages entitled The Red and the Blue has been simply to try to get us to take a look at important issues leading up to this election season, challenging us to look at these issues through the lens of the Word of God and understanding the truth that He provides for us. And I know that, you know, there have been some folks who said, well, you know, some of these have been, eh, all right. Some I could have done without. And I went back through, and, and please understand, I normally come to the pulpit very organized. And this morning, I've got papers sticking out everywhere up here. And there's a reason for it. I have written this morning's message, I think, five different times in the last eight days. I've shredded it. I've started over. I've added to. I've taken away. And I'll be perfectly honest. I don't know how in the world it's going to come out. So I just ask you to bear with me. Over the last several weeks, we've talked about how to live like Christ during a hostile time in our nation's history like this election season has become. We've talked about the sanctity of human life made in God's image. We've discussed God's definition of the family and what he thinks a family ought to look like, should look like, the way he made it. We talked about immigration. Now, that was a tough one. I, I understand that. Last week, we talked about the biblical economics versus our current reality as a nation. All of those things lead into this morning. Because this morning, I, I feel compelled to talk about something that's very near and dear to my heart and probably, possibly more near and dear to me than to anyone else in the room although it should not be so. I want this morning for us to talk about religious liberty and ask the question, will we remain free? Now, I said, you know, this perhaps is a little bit more important to me than it is to you, or so you would think, because, well, as a preacher, please understand, I'm in the crosshairs here. But it should be equally important to each one of you who call yourselves by the name of Christ. Because you may not realize it or not, but every one of these issues we've discussed comes back to the point of religious freedom. Will you have the freedom to speak your peace based upon how your beliefs are shaped, molded, and influenced by the Word of God? Or will you be told how you are to believe because you are a citizen of this country? We're only a few steps away from being at a place where the things that I've spoken in the last several weeks will land me in jail. Though I've tried to be kind, gracious, gentle, loving, the things that I've said, many of the things I've said will be termed hate speech. 
and would lead to my incarceration. I cannot and I will not be silent. (laughs) Through the university, through the seminaries that you have helped to fund through the cooperative program, I have been taught in church history classes far more than I ever wanted to take that Baptists have always been at the forefront of religious liberty issues. Our forebears have been those who said we will not be silent nor will we allow the state to tell us what we can say, where we can worship, how we can worship, or what we will practice in public. We are a large reason, friends, why the First Amendment to the Constitution exists today. Why do we believe this way? John chapter 8, you can find verses, you know them well. You don't have to look them up. In verse 32, Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You drop down just a few verses to verse 36 and Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. But at the same time, I read the scriptures and I I see Jesus clearly separating the church and the state. Do you remember his words from Matthew chapter 22? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but unto God what is God's. They are not one and the same. They are not, they have never been, they cannot be. This past week... The words of a pastor friend in another state came to me. I read them and I thought, wow, if I could only be so eloquent. And I thought, I don't have to be. I can read his words. (laughs) And so I, I want to read to you a portion of a letter that was written by a pastor friend. He said this, consider Thomas Jefferson. Political theorist, statesman, diplomat. He was a scientist, an inventor, an architect, and a farmer. He was also the author of the Declaration of Independence. As third president of the United States, he doubled the nation's territorial claims through the Louisiana Purchase. In the 1960s, President John F. Kennedy hosted a state dinner for a collection of Nobel Prize winners. In his opening welcome, he remarked, I think this is the most extraordinary collection of talent and human knowledge that has ever gathered together at the White House, with the possible exception of when Thomas Jefferson dined here alone. Jefferson was clearly a remarkable man. Now, he was not an evangelical Christian in the sense that we understand it. But he was a man committed to liberty of belief and freedom of thought. He he was a kindred spirit to a minority group of his day called Baptists. As such, he advocated full civil and religious liberty for members of religious minorities like Baptists. The Danbury Connecticut Baptist Association once wrote to him in gratitude and support for his religious liberty positions. In reply, Jefferson wrote them a letter stating, Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legislative powers of government reach actions only and not opinions. 
I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. A wall of separation. My friends, it is not a constitutional phrase. It comes from Jefferson's letter to the Danbury, Connecticut Baptists. He used it as a metaphor to describe what he saw as an appropriate separation between government and church. Today, people think this separation suggests that a government should have no influence on the church, and the church cannot have any influence on the government. We live in a generation where religious beliefs, Christian practices, are said to be appropriate only in private. We're told that our faith has no place in the public square. But that's not what the First Amendment provides. The First Amendment prohibits Congress from exercising constitutional control or institutional control in matters of religious conscience. Lawmakers have no stake in the religion business. cultural environment producing these amendments included the practice of tax-supported state churches. It was a, a model that was inherited from various European nations. But once a denomination had been made the state church of a colony, they were granted special privileges. Tax money was made available to buy church property. Taxes were used to build church buildings. Public revenue paid ministry salaries. And as always, control followed money. Eventually, churches became instruments of the government. Political maneuvering secured pastoral appointments in the same way as judges, cabinet members, and other political appointees. The principle that Baptists advocated with close agreement from both Jefferson and Madison was that the state should not be involved in establishing institutional religion and using taxes forcibly taken from the citizenry to benefit a privileged segment of the population. This was never meant to silence the church's prophetic voice in the public square or to limit her moral presence in the culture at large. In fact, the very day after Jefferson posted his letter to the Danbury Baptist, he attended a sermon by the Baptist radical John Leland. And there, Jefferson affirmed Leland's position approving Christian influence toward the government while at the same time denying institutional control by government over institutions of faith. The wall of separation was a metaphor. A metaphor used to illustrate this separation between bodies of faith and institutional government. My friends, make no mistake, we are to be good citizens. We are to be the best citizens, faithful in our duties and obligations that accompany citizenship so long as those duties to Caesar do not compromise our higher loyalty to God. So this morning, I want us to look into the Word of God. I want us to see our responsibility as Christian people, as travelers moving through this world headed home. I want us to look and see 
how God would instruct us to behave in these days and in the days to come. And so I want us to look together to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to read a couple of verses there, and then we are going to move over to 1 Peter chapter 2 and read a few verses there. But if you've got your Bible open there, if you can and will, I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning in honor of our Heavenly Father as we read together from His inspired Word. Paul is writing to his his protege in the ministry, Timothy. He says, I urge then first of all that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings, and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful, quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter is going down this same road of what it means to be a Christian citizen. Now, please understand before I even head into this passage that Paul and Peter both were living under the control and authority of the Roman Empire. Both of them would forfeit their lives to that empire, that government, because of their preaching and their ministry. I want you to hear what Peter says, beginning together in verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will. That by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Would you pray with me? Father, as we spend these moments together, I pray that you would speak your truth into our hearts and lives. Lord, help us to understand our times, our situation, and the need that we have to honor you in every way. Father, I pray for our nation. I pray for these elections that are upcoming. I pray for those who are in positions of leadership and authority over us and those who soon will be. Father, I pray that you would move in their hearts and minds to accomplish your will. I know from your word it does not matter whether they are submissive or rebellious that you have the power to accomplish through their lives that which you desire and design. I pray that it would be so. And Father, I pray that we would continue to keep our eyes focused upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. These passages written by Paul and Peter outline our Christian responsibility to submit to the authorities that God has placed over us. They remind us that God has ordained the government to punish evildoers and to reward those who do good. These are just a 
couple of passages. If we simply sat down and said, let's read every passage we can find that deals with these issues, we could fill up the next 30 minutes easily by doing so. I think this is sufficient to drive home this point. It is God's word that should, that must shape our beliefs, mold our convictions regarding what it means to be a Christian in this land or any other land. I believe that these passages of scripture need to help us understand the freedom we have been given, the blessing that it is. I've wrestled with this, folks. I've been preaching this sermon in my head since 4 a.m. this morning. Going over and over what needed to be said. Trying to figure out how do I get us to understand. You see, I don't know that we can. I look across this room and I know there are a few of you that I don't know or don't know well. And and perhaps you would surprise me with your life stories. And I would be thrilled with that. But here is the reality. The vast majority of us in this room have never experienced what persecution is. Persecution is not someone slamming a door in your face. It may be uncomfortable, but that's not persecution. That's rejection. Someone may tell you that they disagree with your belief system, and they may get ugly about it and call you names or curse at you. That's not persecution. Again, that is rejection. We have been so blessed to live in this amazing country where freedom of religion is our birthright. And we have the freedom to come in and out of this building any day of the week that we choose. We can come together and we can worship, we can praise, we can study the Word of God. And do you know what? We can walk out of here. If we want to, we can walk right smack dab across the street and in the front door of the Y and start talking to people about Jesus. It's our right. That right does not exist all around the world. And whether you care to acknowledge it or not, I want you to hear my voice. That right is in danger in this country today. Be aware. Be aware. It's not just going to be guys like me that wind up in trouble. It'd be some of you too. Say, well, what do you mean in trouble? Over the last several weeks I've been looking toward this term brother David could tell you I told him I said man we got to get to this morning it's cakewalk from here it's been the most difficult week of my life getting ready to preach I went back and I read some of the writings of people like John Bunyan when he was imprisoned for nothing other than what I'm doing right now standing in a pulpit with the word of God before him saying here's what God teaches us and he wound up locked away in prison We've never experienced that. But my friends, we are getting dangerously close. And because of that, I think it's important for us to understand that as Baptists, what, listen, you may say, well, I'm not sure I'm a Baptist then. Okay, that's good. Let's let's put it in context then. What do Baptists believe about religious liberty? Well, let me just share a few things with you. As a Baptist, I, I believe in religious liberty. Let's just start there. I believe in it. I mean, Jesus said you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Man, there's no higher freedom than that. 
that doesn't necessarily equate to a physical freedom in this world. It does not mean we will not suffer persecution or have to endure hardship. It simply means that we are free in spirit. We are free in conscience. You see, my conviction is that God alone is the Lord of the conscience. Government can pass every law it wants to. It can impose every tax that it desires, but it cannot tell me what I must or will believe. I am free in heart. I am free in spirit. I am free in soul. Why? Because the Son has set me free and I am free indeed. The Lord alone is Lord of my conscience. You see, religious liberty is the right of every person to worship God or not as they see fit without any interference from the government or its institutions under the direction of God and God alone to whom all of us are accountable. I was amazed this past week I sat down and once again read the sermon of George W. Truitt that was preached, I believe it was May the 16th, back in the early 1900s. He was on the east steps of the U.S. Capitol building. Can you imagine such a thing happening today? There were between 15 and 20,000 people assembled there to hear the voice of the great preacher from the First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. And I mean, he let it rip. He told them about freedom of religion. He told them about Baptist beliefs regarding that. He said this, it is the natural and fundamental and indefeasible right of every human being to worship God or not according to the dictates of his conscience. And as long as he does not infringe upon the rights of others, he is to be held accountable alone to God for all religious beliefs and practices. Now, I just tell you something. I think as he got to the end of this passage, he went all kinds of prophetic on them and they didn't even know it. Say, what do you mean? Listen to what he said. Our contention is not for mere toleration, but for absolute liberty. And then he describes it. He says there is a wide difference between tolerance and liberty. Toleration is a gift from man, while liberty is a gift from God. And God wants free worshipers and no other kind. This is what Baptists have long championed. This is what Baptists have fought for, prayed for, preached for, been imprisoned for. And history reveals, not, not revisionist history, but actual history will reveal that there were Baptist ministers and Baptist laymen who pressed hard upon the founders of this country who were going to be writing those documents that we refer to today as the Constitution and the Bill of Rights to make sure that the freedom to worship was kept there in free sight. Now, no, I'm waiting for someone to say, you're wrong, preacher. Please tell me I'm wrong. Oh, but I am. I just slipped one on you. They did not put in place the freedom to worship. They put in place freedom of religion. And my friends, there is a vast difference. And in the last decade, the leadership of this country has slipped you a fast one. And very few people have stood up and said, you're wrong. The Constitution does not 
guarantee us freedom to worship. It guarantees us freedom of religion. And there is a vast difference. So I don't get it. Well, then let me explain it to you. Freedom to worship says that you are free to come inside this building and do anything that you want at any time you want. But when you leave this building, you leave your faith in here. That is not what our forefathers fought and died for. That is not what our Constitution says. It says that we have the irrevocable right to take our faith outside of these walls and share it freely and live it openly and not be concerned about what anyone else thinks about it. That does not just apply to Christians. It applies to Christians and Jews and Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims. We must respect the law and obey the authority. But we have been given a right to worship and a freedom to worship, not only in private, but also in public realms. I believe, my friends, I believe with all of my heart in religious liberty, but I also believe in all of my heart in the separation of church and state. Now, I understand something, too. There are two opposing worldviews that are clashing mightily in our culture today. And those of us who are in this room, when we talk about separation of church and state, we think of one thing. But there is a whole gaggle of humanists and secularists out there who have a completely different definition of what separation of church and state means. So let me just tell you quickly what I think. Whether it's good, bad, right, or wrong, I can't tell you that. I can just simply tell you what my conviction is, and I want to do that. First, I believe that the, church, the state is there to protect the church, to allow the church to pursue its religious and spiritual ends. Basically saying this, the government has a responsibility to fulfill its end of the constitutional statement. Just as much as we have the right to fulfill our desires to worship and to serve and to practice our faith however God leads us while still being good citizens and honoring the authority and keeping the law. You say, well, what's that mean? Let's talk about little stuff. Uh, can I talk about little stuff for just a minute? Little stuff. Our kids ought to be able to wear a t-shirt to school with a Christian message on it without being hassled about it or told they have to change their shirt or to go to the bathroom and take their shirt off and turn it inside out and put it back on. They ought to be free to pray whenever and wherever they want to because that's the practice of their religion and that's guaranteed by the Constitution. And we ought to be free to talk about our faith wherever we find ourselves and not labeled as intolerant simply because we believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. I know that it sounds narrow. It is narrow. Jesus himself said it was a narrow way and few there be that will find it. This allows us to also exert our influence to be the people that God has called us to be. I also believe that this means the state should not favor one religious group over another. And that's really hard for a lot of folks in Baptist life or in Christian life because we want to say we believe in freedom of religion, but we want it to apply to us and not necessarily everybody else. Not everybody agrees with us. 
But I do want you to understand something. Constitution guarantees freedom of religion, not freedom from religion. And I know that there are a lot of people who say, well, we just need to take all signs of religion out of the public square. There needs to be no display of religion. There needs to be no display of faith. Can I tell you what that's called? Communism? Folks, I'm not, I'm not speaking out of school. I've been in Russia. I preached in St. Petersburg and in Moscow. I know what's gone on over there. Can I just tell you what was so amazing to me when I was there? Was that they begged and pleaded for us to go into the schools and talk to their children about who Jesus was. And it was amazing to me because I came home from Russia. I came to the land of the free and the brave and was told we couldn't pray before a football game. Hello? I thought I was in the wrong country. Here's the reality. Ask anybody who's ever lived in a communist country. Here's the reality. Atheism is a religion. And when we make it our business to remove all religious symbolism and all faith matters out of the public square, we are embracing atheism, which is a religion. We have just violated our own constitution if we do so as a state. Let me move quickly. It's also my conviction in this separation that Christians should not look to the government to carry on the work of the church. We are responsible to do the work of the kingdom of God to the best of our means with the ability and the resources that God places within our hands. And if that's not enough, then we ought not to do it. End of story. Lastly, I'm going to say this. Christians have a responsibility to the state. Never forget that. Never forget that. We're salt and light. We are going to have problems. We are going to have difficulties as the days unfold before us. I don't know where it's going, but I do know this, that many of the things that we talk about, many of the things that God's Word talks about are going to be things that are going to offend the sensibilities of people within our culture. We already do. My reassurance is found in this truth found in the Word of God in Paul's letter to the Philippians, that my citizenship is in heaven. I'm here. I'm a citizen. When I violate the laws of this land, I will suffer the consequences. I accept that willingly. But if God's Word and God's calling on my life tells me to say or do that which will put me in opposition to the state of this nation, then I will be in opposition. I will gladly accept those consequences. But you're going to have to decide where you're going to go with it, my friend. Let me revert once more to the words of my pastor friend. And share with you his closing paragraphs because I thought, man, as I read them, my eyes filled up and I thought, we're still kindred spirits, so I haven't gotten to visit with him for a number of years now. He wrote these words, I'm a deeply patriotic person. I still get misty-eyed when I watch videos of our soldiers coming home to their families. I grew up in an elementary school where we said the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag every morning. However... As deeply ingrained as the American experience is in me, I can never allow allegiance to our American flag to supersede allegiance to the kingdom secured by the blood of the Lamb. And if the two come into conflict, we have to remember which kingdom is mightier. 
There are different requirements in these two realms. The state calls for respect, but God demands reverence. The state wants honor, but God wants worship. The state expects legal obedience, but only God can require spiritual obedience. The state calls for lawfulness. Only God can demand submission. The state wants harmony. God requires unity. The state calls for political allegiance. But God must have absolute loyalty. It's my conviction and my belief that a free church in a free state is the ideal. (laughs) It's the best we can get, folks. I I don't know of anything better. What does that, what's that mean? It means that it's a relationship where the church is free from the state's influence, but at the same time, all of these individuals who together corporately make up the church are also citizens of the state, members of the kingdom of God, and are free to impact the place where they live for the sake of righteousness. That doesn't mean we become a state run by the church. But it means that the state and the church peaceably coexist. It's not so everywhere in the world. In fact, more often than not, it doesn't exist. What do you mean by that? Dr. Richard Land, a far greater thinker than myself, said there are three options in every nation. Three possibilities. The first possibility is avoidance. And he says, with avoidance, we may completely remove all recognition from the, of the church and create a secular society. That's what's happened in places like France and some of our other European neighbors where they have completely removed any vestige of religion or faith from their government from their open culture, and they've suffered for it mightily. The second is acknowledgement, where we employ a government affirmation of whatever the majority religion is. In your mind, think Iran. Majority religion is recognized. All others are heretical, and anyone who practices such heresy is condemned to punishment. The third possibility is accommodation. And by accommodation, we allow all views to be encouraged and respected. And that has been the historical position of this nation through the centuries of its existence. I struggle with this. I I struggled with this coming here this morning because I know someone's going to walk out and say, well, you know, that's really not a, a gospel message, but it is. It is because, you see, God is the giver of this gift we call freedom. And religious freedom, it's both a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing if because it allows us the privilege to worship where, when, and with whomever we wish, without any fear 
of reprisal without any fear that we are going to be caught and told we are standing outside of the official position of our government. That's a blessing. But the problem with blessings is that so often they are taken for granted. And when that occurs, the blessing becomes a curse. What I mean is that, folks, we speak so glibly of persecution and we know not of what we speak. Are we prepared to take our cues? Are we ready to learn how to do church from the persecuted church? Our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who have lived under persecution and in darkness for decades? Unless we are ready to stand to our feet and voice our beliefs and vote our convictions and make a difference in our culture, we better prepare ourselves to become a part of the persecuted church. Unfortunately, we in this country have too often been like like the trust fund child who never learned how to work, never learned the value of what they possessed no concept of how, how precious, how, how unique our religious liberty is. And because we've failed to recognize that, too often we've failed to guard it. And all the while we've watched culture devolving around us. And we've failed to speak. As Christians, we must let our voice be heard. Remember what Paul wrote to Timothy. Remember what Peter wrote to the church. We need to let our voices be heard, but it needs to be done kindly. It needs to be done graciously. It needs to be done lovingly, and it needs to be done firmly. It needs to be done smothered in prayer for those who are in authority over us and those who lead among us. But it needs to be heard. But it needs to be heard in a way that is submissive to the law and obedient to the authority, but it must be heard. We're called to be salt and light in the culture where we live. God has given us a responsibility to make a difference, to be change agents in the world we live in. The best way to do that at this particular point in our history is to know Christ and to follow Christ. Listen, I told the children, it's not enough to have your shampoo sitting in the shower. It's not enough to have a bar of soap up there on the rack in your bathtub. you got to use it. It's not enough to know about Jesus. It's not enough to say, I went to church. We have to let Jesus flow over us and cleanse us and make a difference through us in the world we live in. We have to vote for those who uphold our freedoms. We have to vote for those who best represent our values. Man, I'm going to tell you something, that's tough this go-round, isn't it? Because if you're anything like me, you're looking, you're saying, there's not anybody out there that upholds my values. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. But we're still part of this system. And this system's what we've got. And these are the people we've got. I know there are all kinds of jokes there but I'm going to let them go because here's the reality. We need to vote for those 
who most closely align their policies and positions with our convictions based on the Word of God. How do you know what those convictions are? You get in the Word of God. Read it. Pay attention. Learn what their positions are and their stances are. And my friend, exercise. Please hear me. Exercise your religious liberty. Get involved in the local church. Get involved in your community. And let's do something different. How about this? Let's unite ourselves together with the purpose of winning this nation to Christ one soul at a time. I mean, what a unique concept for the church, huh? How do we go about doing that? We make sure that we know him. We make sure that he is Lord of our lives. We surrender ourselves to the purpose and the position of making Christ famous everywhere we go. Exercise your freedom of religion. Speak the truth of who God is, what he's done in your life, what he desires to do in the lives of others. You might just be amazed to see how many people would respond to a simple presentation of the gospel. Yesterday, Brother Lorne and a handful of our members went to Tulsa. They worked at a fall carnival down there with a Baptist church, a pastor that I'd known for years. 520-something shoes given away. 520-something people heard the gospel presented. 571. 52 people prayed to receive Christ. Folks, can I tell you something? That bears out everywhere we go. You know what that means? One out of every 10 people you talk to is ready to receive what Christ offers. Why aren't they receiving Christ? Because nobody's talking. Why aren't we talking? Because we are throwing away one of the greatest rights, privileges, freedoms, and liberties that we've been given. Don't waste it. The time may come and the day may soon arrive where seizing that opportunity may cost you your freedom. Let's work while it's light. Because the night is coming, my friends, when no man will be able to work. The most important thing is not the United States Constitution. Nor is it the U.S. Bill of Rights. The most important words that I can tell you, show you, or give you are right here. And if you want the Reader's Digest condensed version this morning, here it is. Because these are the most important words in here. Do not be surprised that I tell you, you must be born again. That's the call to life. That's the call I've received, many of you have. But it's the call we are challenged to share. Will we do it? You decide. Let's bow our heads together. In just a moment, we're going to stand together and sing a, a song of invitation.
Here's the reality. If you're here this morning and you know in your heart that you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's not anything more important that I can talk to you about this morning than this one thing. God loves you. God loves you so much that he saw you in your sin. By the way, don't get offended when I say that. We're all sinners. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, myself included. But when he saw you and me and our sin, he loved us so much that he was willing to give his own son to take our sin upon himself and allow himself to die in our place at the cross. And there, because of what Jesus did, salvation was made available. Salvation. Freedom of soul and spirit. Freedom from sin and its bondage. Freedom from the guilt, the burden, the shackles of this world. Freedom in Jesus. That's the greatest freedom. And today he offers it to you. If you don't know him, you want a relationship with Jesus Christ, it'll change your heart and change your life. I invite you in a moment after I pray, when we stand and begin to sing, would you come take me by the hand and say, Pastor, I want that relationship. I won't embarrass you or put you on the spot, but I want to make sure you understand that today you can become a new creation in Jesus Christ. You can become a child of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it's a frustrating period in our history. Would you focus your eyes on Jesus? Would you filter everything you read and hear and listen to and see? Would you filter it through the Word of God so that God Himself can direct you to make good choices, to say the right things, to do the right things, to be the right person? Would you, would you commit yourself to that today? Whatever God's calling you to, I just want to ask you, hear his voice. Be obedient. Let him direct your steps. Let him use you. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. Boy, it's so hard sometimes to balance our citizenship in two realms. It's hard for us sometimes to understand the implications and the consequences of the choices and the decisions that we make or the decisions we fail to make. But Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds that we might look at all of our life through the filter of your word understanding our role, our position, our place, and the service you call us to. And Father, I pray that you would help each one of us to be obedient to your word. And Father, I pray for those who might not know you that today your spirit would draw them, helping them to understand that the greatest need in their life the greatest need in any of our lives is to experience a touch from the Savior. And Father, I pray that you direct our paths. Today and in the days to come as we pray for our nation and we pray for our leadership and we pray for those who are going to be in positions of leadership, guide our paths, Father. Keep our hearts, our minds, our lips, and our words pure. 
that we might continue to serve you even as we journey through this world. Now, Father, I ask you to take these moments. Accomplish in each of our hearts and our lives what you desire to do. Have your way. And Father, find here obedient hearts, people who are ready to hear your voice and respond to your call. Lord Jesus, have your way, for we pray this in Jesus' name.